Well, our text today is not a typical quick, uh, Christmas text, but it still touches on the incarnation. So it is great timing, <clears throat> excuse me, that we should be looking at it today. So if you would, take your Bibles and look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16 is what we'll be studying together. 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. The question I think that this text is going to answer for us is how does our ecclesiology and how does our Christology, so both of those doctrines, Paul is going to hit hard in this. And just so you know, in what, three short verses, maybe not so short, but three verses, it's like Paul decided let's pack as much doctrine into two to three verses as we possibly can. And so he dumps some in and packs it down and dumps some more in and packs it down further and then pours some more and it's overflowing. So that's what we're going to see. So it is, in my opinion, a rather ambitious text for about 30 minutes of time that we have or even less, 20 minutes, 25 minutes. So we're going to move very quickly and there are some... There are many difficulties in this paragraph that we could spend time on, Uh, questions even about some textual criticism, so I'm not going to deal with all of those in great detail for obvious reasons. But I do want us to understand what's going on in this text. And so when we consider how does ecclesiology and Christology undergird our beliefs, that's really the issue here. And our behavior, because if you'll notice what's going on in 1 Timothy, Paul is dealing with both of those issues. How should we behave? He's going to bring that up in this paragraph. And then how should we defend our doctrinal positions that we hold so dearly to, closely to? So I want to consider a quote before we look at the text. Tozier said this, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. You and I recognize that when you look at 1 Timothy, there were doctrinal issues that had arisen in this church in Ephesus. What, 30 years after Jesus has died and resurrected, There are already doctrinal issues emerging in the church that were affecting folks there. And if it was happening then, it certainly can happen to us today. And so we need to understand then, how does God expect us to respond in the church, both with our ecclesiology, how we we function as a church, what we believe as a church, with regard to our Christology, and, of course, other doctrines. So let's consider what was going on in Ephesus at this particular time. There was unhealthy doctrine. Some of this we've already talked about as we work through 1 Timothy chapters 1 and 2. Even chapter 3 begins with uh, the issue of pastors and deacons, how they should be behaving in the church in light of these false teachings. So here's some of what you would see, false teaching, myths, Endless genealogies, speculations, chapter 1, verse 4, you see that. Meaningless discussions, chapter 1, verse (laughs) 6. So genealogies, 
Why would we even care about those other than those that are mentioned in the scriptures? Misuse of the law, chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. Doctrines of demons and deceitful spirits, chapter 4, verse 1. And even asceticism in chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. So you've got an array of false teachings. Now, you look at that and you say, okay, what's that have to do with us? Um, I often wonder this, because when you look at some of those, endless genealogies, speculations, was that really that big of a deal? But to Paul it was. Because in chapter 1, verse 4, he talks about these folks being diverted away from the stewardship that was entrusted to them in their faith. In other words, even some seemingly benign discussions, arguments, could divert us away from the truth of the gospel and from our work in the gospel in the church. And certainly none, none of us have ever seen those worthless speculations in our circles, have we? Oh, absolutely we have. So here's what evangelical circles, broad evangelical circles, are arguing over today. You know some of these. It's always been a struggle with inspiration, inerrancy, the blood atonement, the trinity, the deity of Christ, Here's some, though, that we've seen over the last, what, five to ten years, even 15 to 20 years? The doctrine of eternal judgment. That is a hot issue in evangelical circles. The issue of worship. Women in the church right now. So I, I think we're always going to see struggles that are emerging because there are always those folks who want to press the threshold of doctrine, even further. And so how does God want us to handle this? Let's consider the context. Paul has left Timothy in Ephesus to complete some pastoral work while Paul goes on to Macedonia. He's hoping to return soon. In fact, our text is going to direct us to those words. But he has a contingency plan just in case because Paul knows things go wrong in his life. And he may not make it back as soon as he would like to. So our passage follows the character qualifications of the pastor and the deacon that we studied together with Dr. Hankins earlier in chapter 3. Our text, therefore, concerns both practice and doctrine within the church. You can be thinking about practice, chapter 1. We talked about false teaching, misuse of the law. Chapter 2, men and women in the church, how they should be functioning in the church. Chapter 3, pastors and deacons. And chapter 5, we'll come back to the issue of uh, the, the widows in the church and how should elders be functioning in the church. So there's all kinds of practice here. So for Paul, as with other New Testament writers, as the doctrine goes... So goes our practice. Those two can never be divorced from one another. Because if we're going to hold firmly to certain doctrine, that is going to govern how our practice is fulfilled even in the church. And so Paul is going to hit that practice here. And he's going to teach us that false teachings, what he will often cause, call diseased doctrine, unhealthy doctrine, 
is going to lead to diseased practice. And so for us, we need to be mindful of both of those issues. And Paul then identifies two doctrinal issues that he's going to pack into this text that stand at the core of this letter. Two foundational issues, the basis of what Paul has been teaching in chapters 1 through 3. So let's take a look then. What, what should we be thinking about as we work our way through this text? Paul is writing not just so that Timothy would know these things, because I suspect Timothy knew them. He'd spent long enough with Paul to know them. But he understood that Timothy would be reading this letter to the church. And therefore, they would be listening in on this conversation between Paul and Timothy about what we should be doing in the church and what we shouldn't be doing. What doctrine should we hold to? And so here's the truth. The church must be united around both biblical conduct, what we've seen in chapter 3, what we'll see elsewhere in this book, and our confession. And that's what he zeroes in on in this particular book. So let's take a look at the text. We're going to read verses 14 and 15 first. Then when we get to 16, we'll look there. But beginning with verse 14, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So what is the first truth that he wants us to understand here? Let's think of it in terms of our truth that we're keeping in mind overall in this text. The church must be united around both biblical conduct and confession. Why? Two reasons. First, because the church of Christ is the support of our doctrine. Now, I know when you hear those words, you might be tempted to think, wait a minute, isn't the doctrine the foundation of the church? Yes. But it is also true in Paul's thinking, as you think through New Testament theology, that the, the doctrine is our foundation, but the church is also supporting that foundation. Therefore, it's working together, both our doctrine and the church, to be a foundation of the work of Christ that he is doing through us. And so that is part of Paul's thinking. The church is here to support this doctrine that we will get to in verse 16. So let's work our way through these words as we look at these verses. The church, you'll notice here, is God's household. So let's look at the verses once again as you look at verse 14. I hope to come to you. Why? So that you might behave in the household of God. Household. That is kind of a common theme in Paul's writing, especially here. If you go back in the earlier part of chapter 3, he talks about the pastor who manages his own household well. Because how can he manage the household of God if he's not managing his household well? Chapter 3, verse 12, he talks about the deacons, each of them managing their children in their own households well. So now Paul is going to broaden our thinking and understanding that the church, this household, is a reflection of all the other households that make it up. And so that means and that there must be a behavior that we must fulfill as we are taking care of the household of God. So household. 
that indicates to us that the church belongs to the living God. That's interesting language then. That means for us, this isn't something that I can structure the way I wish. It's his. It belongs to God. But it is also a belonging to a living God. Giving us the distinction here that we're not serving some false God some God that doesn't exist, or some God that is dead. This is the living, taking us back to the resurrection, the living God who oversees this church. Now, we should clarify, Bob Jones University is not a church. But in many ways, we function according to these standards. I doubt very seriously if we would ever hire professors, especially in the seminary or the school of religion that doesn't measure up, to the standards that we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But we're not a church. But we should understand these truths because all of you are going to go out and serve in local ministries, local church ministries. And so this is the church of the living God. This, again, is Paul's theology, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He mentions this, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. A quote from the book of Leviticus. Ephesians 2, he talks about us being built together as a dwelling place for God, the church. So it's a common theme for Paul. So let's consider then this idea of foundation and truth. As you look at the verse again, he talks about two structural elements. A foundation and a pillar. Could be a buttress. Scholars kind of argue over that word, but whatever it is, it is a support structure for the church. So I want us to think in terms of what this means. A pillar is an upright, visible support for a structure. Pillars were also an adorning feature to those buildings. So if you're thinking about a, a, a structure that you might see, in fact, let me give you an illustration of one. You'll recognize the Lincoln Memorial here. Got all those pillars around that support the roof, the structure. They're also, though, giving us kind of an adorning feature to this building. They're attractive. They call our attention to this mammoth structure. So that's a pillar. The foundation provides the basis or foundation for belief or practice, the solid support what we might call the defense of the gospel. So let's dig a little bit deeper into the Lincoln Memorial, can we? This structure was built back in the early 1900s. Amazing structure, very heavy because there's so much stone here. What you're looking at, though, is before this building was backfilled, you're seeing the foundation underneath. There were actually two structures to the foundation, a sub-foundation and a main foundation. Multiple pourings of concrete and steel went into that structure to build that support. And you look at it and you say, that's just about, what, half? And we're not even seeing what's below the ground. About half of that structure is foundation. It took... Uh, almost, uh, let's see, over a year, a year and several months to construct just the foundation. So you get the impression then when Paul writes these words, he's thinking of a massive stone structure. 
doesn't tell us what, but they had plenty of those in the ancient world. Supported by foundation and pillars. All supporting that structure together. So both metaphors stress the firm foundation upon which the truth is supported and displayed. So the church both supports this structure as well as displays it in ornamental ways to the world around us. We're to display this truth in such a way that it captures the minds, the eyes of those who are seeing. The implication then is that we hold this truth firmly against the winds of false teaching. There are many of those out there. We hold the truth on display. The truth is held high for all to see. So let's remember it isn't the truth that is unstable. It is the culture in which we find ourselves. An unstable culture can undermine the truth through its false teaching. Now, the truth isn't weak. It's just that there are so many attacks on that truth. And it can erode that truth in the minds of the people to whom we minister. A church that isn't vigilant with both its doctrine and its practice can find itself in disarray spiritually, just as we see in the church at Ephesus in this day when Paul wrote. So Paul mentions the word truth five times in each of these epistles. The noun here is without the article, so he's probably stressing the fact that this has the, the qualitative nature of the truth, or of the church rather, is to support this truth, this body of truth, and that quality of truth that is all about our message. So here's what some of the problems we can face in our church then. We can add to the truth, therefore diluting and distorting it. I fear oftentimes in our circles, especially in fundamentalism, that that is our temptation. We are wanting to protect the truth so carefully that we're, we're adding concepts to that that really don't belong. So be careful we don't add to the truth. We can subtract from the truth, thereby diminishing its power. We can pollute the truth and thereby defile it. The church is entrusted with the responsibility that the truth continues to stand without distortion. When we get to our application section, then I'm going to talk about that a little bit further. How should we handle that? Christianity, then, is not a way of life as distinguished from a doctrine, and this is what Machen says. I like this quote. Christianity is not a way of life as distinguished from a doctrine nor a way of life expressing itself in a doctrine, but a way of life founded upon a doctrine. So you can begin to see how our practice and how our doctrine are so intermeshed that we cannot separate the two. So let's consider then verse 16, the second truth that Paul wants us to learn here. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So this is the doctrine now that the church is supporting. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. Now, if you are, if you've ever had 1 Timothy for a book, study, or if you have done your own personal reading, you know there are all kinds of theories on how these are structured. 
It does appear to be some kind of a hymn that maybe Paul was quoting. They are succinct doctrinal statements, very short, concise statements. There are six of them. They seem to be broken into two, three, or two uh, of three statements, so two groups of three. Some will say that they're actually couplets that go together, two, four, six. So you've got all kinds of ways of looking at these literarily. I'm simply going to say this. Study more if you're interested in that. What we need to see is the message for this, though. So here's the truth. So because the church of Christ is the support for our doctrine, but the second reason, because the gospel of Christ is the core of our doctrine. And this is where Paul really spends the bulk of his time in this paragraph. So let's consider these three lines as we look at them. So first of all, Paul teaches about the mission of Christ. And I'm going to break it down this way. The mission of Christ versus the effects of the mission of Christ in the second half. So let's look at the verse. You've got the incarnation. He was manifested in the flesh. That's what we sang about in our song this morning. So Jesus was born. He took on humanity. That wonderful passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, where Jesus humbled himself. He emptied himself. How? In taking on flesh. He became like us. So his incarnation. He was vindicated by the Spirit or in spirit. Another one of those difficulties that scholars like to argue over. Is it capital S as in Holy Spirit or is it small s? But I want you to notice here what he's talking about more than likely is the resurrection because in the New Testament, the resurrection is that event that vindicated who Jesus was. You remember even in the Gospels, the folks would ask him, tell us plainly who you are. Prove to us that you are the Son of God. And he says, wait and see. Because if you destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. And of course, that became that vindication that he was who he claimed to be, the Son of God. So is it spirit or in spirit? I tend to lean towards small s because you've got the parallel with flesh and spirit. It could very easily be the Holy Spirit. But this is a vindication of his deity because it is parallel with flesh, I argue for a small s here, but just as his flesh demonstrated his humanity, that he was human, that he was physical, his resurrection demonstrated the spiritual nature of Christ in his identity as the Son of God. And it vindicated him in such a way that when he rose, God was saying to his enemies, you remember those charges you brought against Jesus that he wasn't really the Son of God? He's vindicated. He has now proven that he is my Son, that he is divine, that he stands ready as the Savior of the world. So Jesus was vindicated in the sphere or realm of his spirit while his accusers believed him guilty of blasphemy and sedition. So all of Jesus' prior claims to be deity were validated in the resurrection of Jesus. His enemies' claims were overturned. S. Lewis Johnson said this, the resurrection is God's amen to Christ's statement. It is finished. And then we have in that third clause, his glorification. He was seen by angels. 
Although angels watched and tended to him throughout his ministry, given the sequence that you see here, the flow of thought, this clause is likely a reference to the ascension. So he came down to earth in his humanity. He was born. Then he was resurrected, which vindicated his identity as the son of God. Then he ascended, and that ascension was visible to the angels, and so that completes his coming down, his mission. And all that mission, then, is what the remainder of the verse is about. So then Paul then teaches about the effects of Jesus' mission. This is after his exaltation. Three clauses define this. He was proclaimed among the nations. Here's the mission. We see that in the Old Testament. Isaiah 49, verse 6, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Instead of ruling over Israel, a new mystery is revealed, the proclamation of Jesus to the nations. Now let's pause for a minute because we didn't talk about that mystery of godliness. This will be a good time to understand that. Mystery, we understand, is something that prior to this point we did not know, but now is revealed. So it's a mystery about Christ, about his incarnation, about his resurrection, about his ascension, about the proclamation of that gospel message to others. And it leads us to godliness as we trust that gospel message. So it's a mystery of godliness. The mystery of how you and I grow in our faith as we come to faith in Christ and grow in that godliness in our understanding of that gospel message. So that's all consumed with this reception then. It was believed on in the world. So this message is proclaimed and people now believe it. And then as a result of that, Christ is now exalted. He's taken up into glory or exalted in glory, the last clause. On its face, this clause seems like another allusion to the ascension, maybe. Some hold to that. But the emphasis here is more on the exaltation rather than the event of how that exaltation occurred. Some see this as a reference to his exaltation in the second coming, maybe. But again, I think what Paul is focused on here is he's proclaimed, he's received, and as a result of that, he is exalted. And ultimately, he will be exalted among the nations through the gospel message. So it would be easy to look at false teaching and practices in this world. False teaching that even creeps into the church at times. And it is a defeat of the truth, it would seem. But Paul reminds us through these, through these truths that the church supports and even adorns the glorious truths of the gospel to a lost world. Our care of these doctrines is not only a God-given stewardship that God gives to us, but it is a lofty position of support for the best teachings known to mankind. This is a high privilege with high responsibility, which means Paul is not just giving this to us so that we carefully protect these truths, although I think that's part of his message. I think he also wants us to relish these truths, cherish them, adorn them, to a lost world around us. So how would we apply these truths? Let's consider three points and then we'll close. First, we must master our theology and let it master us. 
Paul's concern here isn't just about this theology. His concern is how does it change our behavior even in the church? How does it change our behavior to the world around us as we share that gospel message with them? If you and I fail to master this theology, or worse yet, fail to let it master us, we will not let it. We will not display it. We will not let it be shown to the world around us, or we may distort that gospel message to those around us. Number two, vigorously defend and practice our theology. It was about the time that I was in school here and then went on to seminary that the big expression started to circulate, do theology. We're doing theology. At first I thought that sounded cliched, and maybe to some it was. But doing theology really is what we are. You're not only learning theology here, you're learning how to implement that theology in the ministry of the church. And so be careful how you do that theology. And then third, be bold and confident in the power of the truth to change lives. We don't have to be skittish, fearful that somehow our truth is old-fashioned or out of date. It's the same truth that has changed lives for generations, and it's the same gospel message that changes our lives and changes the lives of those to whom we minister. So go back to our truth one more time. The church must be united around both biblical conduct and our confession. Why? Because the church of Christ is the support of our doctrine, and the gospel of Christ is the core of that doctrine. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for this passage, and our time has been so limited today, and yet these truths are so profound for us, even in short time. We understand the powerful message that Paul was presenting to Timothy and to the church that heard this message in Ephesus. Lord, help us to be confident in these truths, to guard them, to learn them, to practice them, to share them with others. And even during this, this Christmas season, may we be quick to share the incarnational truth of Christ and his purpose in coming to die. Help us to be bold in that message and then encourage us through these truths. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.